So tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the wise men coming to approach Jesus at Christmas. Just kidding. Uh, I thought that was pretty... I was saying good morning to people uh, as everybody was walking in, so I can't, can't blame them. It all starts to blend together after a while. Hey, I'm real excited to be here uh, tonight teaching you on reconciliation. It just so happens right now I'm taking a class down at Trinity Seminary on uh, systematic theology of, of Christ. Um, and my professor is actually teaching next week uh, on atonement. And atonement and reconciliation are very similar. Uh, so Justin Terry and I went out to lunch and he said, you're not allowed to use anything you learn in lecture um, for your sermon on Wednesday. And I said, well, try and stop me because I go first. So anyway, uh, so we're excited that he'll be teaching next week. But I'm very excited to be teaching on something that is just beautiful uh, tonight. But before we go into the Word, why don't we go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Precious Jesus, we thank you so much for prayer. Uh, never is it to be looked at as something we have to do, but prayer is a privilege. And we should never forget that. As I just was talking to a couple of friends before coming in here, God, about how, how beautiful it is that we can come right to you with our prayer. That we don't need a human intercessor. We don't need to go to an ark. We can just come right to you. And so we thank you for that, God. We thank you for your whole plan and strategy of reconciling us to you. And so, God, as we dive into your word tonight, may we take this simple word of reconciliation and really uh, just unpack it and dive into it. Because although it's one word, it really holds some deep, deep significance uh, for us as believers. And so, God, we thank you so much for, for the way that you have loved us. We thank you so much for the way that you have forgiven us. And God, may we never, ever take that for granted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, first off, if you, have, um, if you have your Bible, I want you to have it on you, and I want you to go ahead and open to Acts 9 right now. And if you have note paper, I, I want you to take notes on this, because reconciliation is one of those big church words that we use quite a bit, um, that we all maybe have a general understanding of, but when you really unpack it, there is a lot of stuff. Uh, I generally have a rule when I'm writing a sermon that I'll do two or three scriptures, um, and I won't do more than that, so that way we can get the, really the meat of what we have. But I've got about nine or ten tonight. Um, because the concept of reconciliation is massive. Uh, it's, it's absolutely massive. And the way I want to start is by explaining it like this. To my son, I am the man. To a lot of you, you know, I am not the man, in fact. And the reason I'm the man to my son is because when he was really little, he had this beautiful fascination with breaking stuff. And so as soon as we would get him a toy, he would test its durability against the wall. And then he would bring it to me and say, Daddy, fix. Unknowing to him, I had this super solution called... Uh, called uh, uh, What's the head? Not, the duct tape's one of them. Super glue. You all knew it. It's the secret to fatherhood. And what I would do is I would say, okay, Brandon, give me your toy. When you go to bed uh, tonight, I'll work on it. And so all that he knew was in the process of him going to sleep, being comfortable handing his issue to his dad, that in the morning it would be fixed. I still don't think he understands what super glue is because to this day, he comes to me and he says, Dad, can you fix this? And the truth is, I love fixing things for my son. 
just because I love them. And reconciliation is that. You can go home now. That's what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is the fact that we as believers have a daddy, have an Abba, we have a father who loves to fix stuff. And what's beautiful about God is no matter how much we break it, no matter how broken we may think it is, God can take our lives and he can take that super holy super glue and he can fix them. He can make our lives right. And it's awesome. If you're taking notes, I want to give you a quick definition of reconciliation tonight that we're going to unpack for the rest of the evening. So if you want to write down reconciliation, it's this. Reconciliation is the restoration of our relationship to the Father, which is centered on Christ being crucified and raised from the dead. So while that may seem like a simple statement, would you like me to read that again? Okay. I am not a professor, and Dr. Terry is, and so he'll do a lot better with that next week. Reconciliation is the restoration of our relationship to the Father, which is centered on Christ being crucified and raised from the dead. When we were planning these Lenten services, we specifically said, we're not going to do sermons, we're going to do lecture series. So if, I, if you want me to say something again, I want you to feel the freedom to say, hey, can you repeat that? Okay? Just, just say it out loud, don't worry, I won't think it's weird. Uh, if you need me to slow down, I can do that too. Because again, I, I really hope that you get something from this tonight. So reconciliation. It's this making right of something. And so when we look at the scriptures, we see reconciliation all through it. It's, it's a restoration of relationship. And so when you look at Acts 9, we see, in, in my opinion, one of the coolest reconciliation stories that there is. Because you see, from the time that Jesus went to the cross, there was a man by the name of Saul who was, who was involved in the persecution of the people following what was called in that time the way. The first name of Christianity was actually called the way, if you didn't know that. And so Christ is crucified, Christ is risen, Christ goes up to the Father's house. And so now you've got a great persecution happening all over the place. This guy Saul has just gone to the high priest and said to the high priest, I want you to give me permission, not just permission, but I want you to give me written legal documents that will give me uh, your blessing to go and arrest these nuts who are following the way. And so Paul, who was present at the stoning of Stephen, Paul, who has been present at all kinds of persecution of the Christians at this time, has now been given ultimate authority to really bring the ruckus to the followers of the way. Because of the miraculousness of Paul's story, I think we oftentimes miss the significant thing that God spared Christianity from in that moment. This decree from the high priest was going to bring the hurt down on the church of Christ. And we all know how the story goes from this point. Saul is on his way to begin to carry out this mission. And all of a sudden, this bright light flashes from heaven. And Saul 
is knocked off his high horse. And in that moment, he has a beautiful encounter with Jesus. Saul. Saul. Why do you persecute me? Do you think in that moment, Saul's heart stood still? Do you think in that moment, Saul asked the question realistically in his heart and said, I wonder who that is. Or like you, when Christ first called you, he knew. He knew who he had encountered. And we saw this beautiful thing happen to Saul where, where there was conviction and there was this tormenting, you know, I'll just call, these are my words, this tormenting of his soul where he was confronted with what he had been and who Christ had been. And it says in the scriptures that he was then blinded and God gave him an address and said, go. Someplace on Straight Street, right? Saul goes and he meets up with a man. I'm going to read it to you because it's just that good. And I have a lot of time. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who were belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And it's interesting because it's a capital L in the scriptures, which is making a reference to the Holy Lord. He knew. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a a disciple by the name of Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. For he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. I love the response. Uh, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, this man is my chosen instrument. Our God loves to fix broken things. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, 
and was baptized. What's beautiful is this story continues. I mean, I want you to think about what it must have been like for the Christians in that town to get a message from God and say, hey, you know that guy trying to kill you? I want you to go help him out. What? (laughs) You do realize what just happened to your son. This has been a little crazy time, God. Go to Straight Street. This is my chosen instrument. We have a God that loves to reconcile, that loves to fix his children. It goes on to say how Saul then went to the, to the disciples and went, went to people and, and nobody wanted to trust him. And, and now the Jews were trying to kill him because he, he was at once on our team and he was like the captain of the team. It'd be like Sidney Crosby playing for Philadelphia. We wouldn't understand that. And now Paul is all of a sudden on the other team, Saul. And, and, and in that moment, God even gives him a new name because when God fixes you, He takes that old broken identity that you once were and he gives you a brand new fixed identity of who you're supposed to be. Because you see, we are the image bearers of God. We are created in his image. And as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, sin broke that. What we are right now is not what God intended. Please, Lord, let us be close (laughs) and working towards it. But we are shattered images of God. And Paul, to me, is an incredible example of this. Because as you would know, Paul goes on to write most of the New Testament. Other than Jesus Christ, there's not a more influential figure, in my opinion, in all of history than Paul. And at one time, he would look at the disciples, he would look at the followers of the way, and he would call them lunatics and enemies. And God took his heart and he took his mind and he, and he reconciled it to himself through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul now calls them brothers. To a, a savior in Christ who he would one time call a, a lunatic, Paul now calls him capital L Lord. Our God loves to reconcile broken things. When you hear that word reconciliation, I know working with students for a very long time, one of the questions that I would often get is, why do I need to be reconciled? Well, I want you to understand that reconciliation is a correcting of a relationship. And the reason we need to be reconciled unto God is because from the beginning of time, things have been broken. Things have been messed up. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 is a chapter that's talking about fallen kings. And in Isaiah 14, we see a story that's being depicted of the morning star. Does anybody know who the morning star is referred to as? Not just Jesus. What's that? Satan. Satan. A lot of us have this question of who is Satan? Where in the Bible do we see the fall of Satan? And here's what happens, folks. is Satan gets it in his mind that somewhere along the line, he can do things better than God. And so Satan, again, as we've seen through Scripture, tries to overthrow God. And as it says in the book of Isaiah... He is thrown down. 
Isaiah 14, chapter 12 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the top of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths, to the pit. The reason why we need to be reconciled starts in that moment. When there's a coup in heaven. And with him goes a third of the angels. Isn't that mind-blowing? Evil just comes to earth begins to attack. Which leads us to an all too familiar story that we find in the book of Genesis. So if you'd like to turn to Genesis 3 with me right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. And I'm sure that you all know this story, but in order for us to understand reconciliation, we have to understand sin. We have to understand why we need reconciliation. And so when we find ourselves in Genesis 3, and this is homework for you, I want you to go home later, and I want you to read Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we see this beautiful uh, account of God being in community with his people. I want you to think about it. I've had little kids, and and it cracked me up how they love to run around the house naked. They just would rip their clothes off, and they would go at it, and they would laugh, and they would say, bum, and smack each other, and run. Now imagine all of our lives we're able to just be in community with one another, innocent and pure, in a place where we didn't have to cut grass. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the nature was perfect. The earth, it was all perfect. And they lived in this garden. They dwelled in this garden. And not only was it a place where we didn't have to grow food, it was a place where God himself walked with us. There's one rule. I don't want you to eat from this tree, he says to his people. And Adam and Eve run around in the garden, hanging out with their animals, doing their thing, worshiping God, being in community with God. Misery loves company, doesn't it? Because it wasn't long before Satan got up to no good. Because you see, he was angry at God. And he saw this creation that he had made, and he saw it as good. He saw it as, as, well, God said it was perfect. God said it was good, so I'm going to break that. So he comes in the form of a serpent. He entices the woman. He says, surely you will not die. Look how good this fruit looks. Eat it. It's delicious. He played on the emotions that I think our culture today plays on us. That God is not a just God. God loves everything. God is happy God. It doesn't, righteousness doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want. Because we have a buddy God. And I'm going to tell you right now, we have a God who is just. We have a God who is light. And light cannot exist with darkness. God is at war with evil. And 
And so in his deceptive ways, he convinces Eve. She gets the apple. And she says, oh, honey, try this. And the next sin is when Adam didn't stick up for his woman. And they sinned. They ate the fruit. And in that moment, they came to the realization that they were naked. And when it came to the realization that they were naked, really what they came to the realization of is that they were not God. They came to the realization that they are, in fact, broken. We all know how the story goes. God shows up in the garden like he does every day, and he's walking. He says, hey, where are you guys at? And they're now hiding. Like we love to hide our sin. They're hiding in the bushes as if God doesn't see them. After a little bit of a conversation, he says, who told you you were naked? And it begins to unravel. The Word of God tells us that in that moment when creation was affected by the fall of man, it wasn't just Adam and Eve through childbirthing and having to now grow food and cut grass. I hate cutting grass. Now all of creation would be forced to suffer. The ground would have to be toiled over. It would now grow thorns and things would have to die in order to feed us. And, and, and in fact, a lot of people think that the first article of clothing that God made for Adam and Eve was a fig leaf. That's not correct. Adam and Eve made themselves fig leaves. I always say God's a Harley guy because he made them leather. Because in that moment, God killed an animal, and, and now something had to die to cover their nakedness. And so not only did Adam and Eve suffer from sin, all of creation is now suffering from sin. And this beautiful moment, this beautiful pageant that has been taking place between Adam, Eve, and God has now come to this rushed moment where, where there's been disobedience. And because of this disobedience, there's a realization of sin. And because of the realization of sin, there's now an expulsion from Eden. They're kicked out of the garden. God says, go. You're going to go out into the wilderness. You're, you're out of here. And he actually sets up guards and cherubims, and it says a sword of fire to protect Eden. And they're now expelled. So in the morning, they had communion with God. They had innocence. They had perfection. And because of one sin, because of one sin, it doesn't seem fair, does it? Let me say this to you. Would this, would this be easier to swallow if the first sin had been like a, a, a mass murder? Would this be easier to swallow if, like, if, if Cain and Abel were the first sin? I want to point out something. The reason why God has orchestrated this the way he did was because there's no other way for us to look at this, what we would call a really ridiculous, silly sin. Some people have said God is cruel because they simply took an apple that they weren't supposed to eat and he condemns all of history over that. I want to point out the reason why that sin is so simple is because so it reminds us as Christian that the sin itself is not the issue. It's the fact that it was disobedience to God. And I love that it's over a silly piece of fruit. Did you ever get in a fight with someone and you can't even remember why you're fighting? It's kind of one of those moments. But the fact is, Adam and Eve were disobedient and now there's a great chasm between them and God. Stuff is broken. The creation is suffering. 
sin is a gigantic wedge now driven forever between us and God. Write this verse down. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. And I would like to read this to you. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered wicked things. So when Adam and Eve sinned, and if they didn't do it, you and I would have. When they sinned, they became sin. They became darkness. And no longer could they commune with God in the way that God wanted to. God loved hanging out with Adam and Eve. He loved being with them. So God was not simply going to surrender. He was not simply going to let go of this beautiful thing that he created. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to work something out. Jim Fitzgerald puts it like this. In that moment of sin, in this one moment, man went from being the children of God to the children of wrath. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, basically tells us all, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. We've all sinned. And I want to challenge you right now. What's that sin in your life that maybe you've given it an easy, soft label because it's not axe murder, because it's not rape, because it's not pillaging? What is that little sin in your life that you need to give over to God? Because after all, the original sin was over a stupid piece of fruit, but it had nothing to do with the fruit. Disobedience breaks God's heart, people. Why do we, why do we need reconciled? Well, because there's a giant hole between us and God now. The Garden of Eden is closed to us, and we are now children of wrath. In order for us to be purified, we would have to somehow pay that bill. Because you see, in order for, for something to be made right, there has to be a payment. There has to be a sacrifice. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is nothing man-made, there is nothing that we can do in our human power whatsoever that could ever pay the bill that we owe now because of disobedience to God. And so you might find yourself asking the question, well then how do we become reconciled? In order for us to be reconciled to God, the wrath of God had to be paid for. And unless you got some super credit card that I don't know about, the only way that that wrath could, could, could be quenched is by a divine sacrifice. Justin Terry made a beautiful quote yesterday. 
And I hope I'm stealing this from him. I hope you hear it next week. But he said, simple bulls and simple sheep were not a big enough sacrifice because we are more significant than them. And because we're significant to God, a significant sacrifice had to be made. And as we dive into this next area, I want you to remember, when Jesus Christ came to earth, he didn't simply detach himself from God. He was fully God and he was fully man. So when God came to earth in the form of Jesus, God himself was here. And so as we start talking about how, do we then, how then are we reconciled, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. That God exists in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not separated from each other. They're one and the same. For those of you that really love the 39 articles, I want to encourage you, when you go home today, read articles 3 and 4, because it preaches to what I'm talking about. Really good stuff. Really simple language that you can take hours of study. That's articles 3 and and 4 if you want some additional homework. A sacrifice had to be made. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, which we are when we're outside of salvation in Christ, we are God's enemy. For if while we were God's enemies, we have reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? You see, in order to be reconciled, the consequence had to be paid. And all of reconciliation, central focus is the cross of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packard puts it like this. He said, Christ died to bear the consequences of our sin as our substitute. See, the wages of sin is death, and each one of us deserves separation from God. We deserve to be kicked out of the garden, but God loves us so much that he said, i got to figure out a way to get my people back. And so when God sent Jesus Christ to earth to give himself up on the cross, it was as if God himself was here, because it was God himself in his Son. Part of the greatness of God is the fact that he's a mystery. And that whole concept is mind-boggling. The way that a a theologian by the name of Karl Barth describes it, he says it's it's as if the judge was handing out a sentence in a courtroom, and a man came in and had committed a crime, and he was sentenced to death by the judge. And then the judge gets up from that seat of authority and says, I will pay the cost. That's what Jesus, that's what God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit Both the judge and the receiver of the penalty. Because he loved us. Because he wanted to dwell with us. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. That is beautiful. We are not worthy of such love. Christ crucified renews all the hope that was lost when sin entered the world. Why is Easter such a big deal? Because on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Death itself could not hold him down, and he gives us the promise that one day we too will rise with him. 
And when we rise with him, we will be reconciled. Our relationship with our Father will be made right, not by any works that we have done, but by everything that Christ has done. For he says, if you confess me as your Lord and Savior, you can come to my Father's house. When we confess our sins to God, and we say, we realize we're not worthy. We need Jesus as our Savior. And when we confess Him and we nail that sin on that cross, we are reconciled. God takes broken you and broken me and He starts piecing it back together in this process of sanctification that we get to walk through. I just love having hope that one day God will completely fix me to the way I was supposed to be. I'm a work in progress, and I hope you are too. Our reconciliation to God, let me start here, excuse me. When Christ died on the cross, he satisfies God's judgment and made it possible for God's enemies, us, to find peace with him. Our reconciliation to God then involves the exercise of his grace and then his forgiveness of our sin. The result of Jesus' sacrifice is that our relationship has changed from enmity to friendship. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends, he says. Christian reconciliation is a glorious truth. We were God's enemies, but now, through Christ crucified, through Christ's death on the cross, through that sacrifice that he made we're forgiven. We were at one time at war with God. But now we have peace that transcends all understanding. John Stott puts it like this in his book, The Cross of Christ. And if you ever have time to read, I highly encourage this book. He says, Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine sacrifice. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine sacrifice. There's only ever been one single person to ever walk the face of the earth who was completely unblemished, untarnished, unsinned. And that was Jesus Christ. That was that incredible sacrifice that is above us. It had to be made for you. Reconciliation, broken stuff getting fixed. But man, there's quite a story behind it, amen? We have been reconciled to our Father through Christ Jesus. If that doesn't cause you to smile, I think you're dead. Isn't that good news? Next week, Pastor, or, uh, yeah, Pastor Terry is going to come and he's going to talk to you about atonement or at one minute, if you will. And I'll be very honest with you. It's a very similar concept of reconciliation, being made right, being made one with the Father. But you know what's beautiful about reconciliation is we're made right with God and we, we get to go and we get to be in glory. But there's more to it. 
Because in the book of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, we see something that talks about the ministry of reconciliation. See, when, when we cast our cares on the Lord, when we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, we join into something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And that is the sharing of the gospel message. So when you are reconciled with God, you are not just reconciled to the bench. You're reconciled to the court, people. God reconciles you to put you in the game. And so if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are responsible for the Great Commission. You are responsible for loving God and loving others. You are responsible for what it tells us in 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to read it to you right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says, All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me, righteousness. We have been given a charge by God to go and share the good news of people with people that dad can fix their broken thing. That they're going to go to sleep tonight putting their faith in the Lord and they're going to wake up in the morning and God is going to have fixed their broken thing. Who are we to keep that message from people? Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you, God, that you have reconciled us through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We thank you, God, that you chose us, that you stirred our hearts in such a way that we followed you. And so, God, as we walk past people in every aspect of our life, may we ask the question, Lord, is it this one you want me to talk to? Because, God, you love to fix broken things. It just cracks me up, Lord, because you're using broken things to reach broken things. I'll never understand you, God, but I love you. Amen.